This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Jesus was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. Hell is the absence of God. And Paul was a tent maker. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, these statements probably sound very familiar to you. The question is, are they really true? In fact, my next guest says these are some of the urban legends that have grown up over time based on misunderstandings or misconceptions of particular New Testament words or texts. This is why it is so important to do proper hermeneutics or biblical interpretation when examining some of these assumed realities that we may unwittingly be imposing upon the Bible. So with me today is Dr. David Croteau. He is professor of New Testament and Greek in the Seminary and School of Ministry at Columbia International University and the author of the book, Urban Legends of the New Testament, 40 Common Misconceptions. Dr. Croteau, great to have you here. How are you today? Doing well, Janet. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, I know this is difficult territory to say that we believe some urban legends about the New Testament, but how do you characterize urban legends when you're talking about misconceptions uh, that we have about the New Testament? Yeah, you know, with urban legends, what I'm trying to do with, with that title is talk about something that is just really commonly believed, but doesn't really have a basis in in data in history. So I talk about two different types of urban legends, actually. One is like a mistaken legend, and one's a misleading legend. So a mistaken legend is is when we kind of created some information or interpretation that really has no basis, and a misleading legend would be something that's pretty close, but maybe not quite precise enough. Okay, so close but no cigar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So you're breaking those down into those two categories. But how do you find that these tend to arise? Because the Bible says what it says. How do people tend to create urban legends when they're interpreting scripture? Sometimes the legends seem to have arisen from uh, a theological bias, maybe years and years ago in, in early church history. Sometimes it arose just because people were unfamiliar with different literary forms, things like hyperbole. So there are different, many different reasons for why they came about. Sometimes it's just an ignorance of how the Greek language works or about certain background information. Very good. Okay, now I know that you have a number of these urban legends listed in your book. We're not going to have time, obviously, to go through every single one of them. But what would you say if you had to pick one that was the most egregious or the most uh, inaccurate, the, the one that really got the text the most wrong in the most embarrassing way? Is there one that stands out for you? You know, my favorite legend really is probably um, the one with Philippians 413. Mm-hmm. We can do anything through Christ who gives us strength. Right. And in in this text, uh, when we read the verse itself, it it seems like 
as one, one scholar has referred to it, it seems like a Superman verse. We can do anything. <laughs> right. we, see, we see athletes and mixed martial arts fighters have tattoos and boxers have tattoos of Philippians 4.13. The problem is, if you just read Philippians 4.13, it makes sense that you know, all means all, and that's all all means, and we can do anything, we can do all things. When we look at the context, Paul is talking about the concept of contentment. Mm. And so really what he's trying to get at there is, in all situations that you find yourself, Jesus Christ can give us the strength to be content. Right. Well, well, then how is it that it has been wrongly interpreted? Because clearly in the context of that passage, you would understand it doesn't mean that we're all supermen because we're Christians. Yeah, I think there are two things that have led to it. One is there's a verb that's kind of missing in the, in the Greek, and it's kind of assumed from the context. And, and so many translations will, will say, uh, I am able to do all things. And, and really the, the concept that's being inferred there should be, I am able to be content, not to do. But the NIV did something really interesting in their translation. Rather than saying all things, the NIV changes it, the new NIV in 2011 changed it to, I can do all this. Hmm. Well, when they changed it to all this, that kind of makes you go, what's the this it's talking about? And so you look back in the previous verses, and you see that Paul is talking about the concept of contentment. So the, the all things makes it sound like everything, but the all this makes it sound like he's talking about something specific. Even though the Greek word is plural, as you point out. Yes, the Greek word is plural. So they're changing the plural to the singular makes the reading of the text easier to understand in English. Okay, very good. Well, now, one of the urban legends that I started out with was this idea that Jesus was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. You say this is an urban legend. Why? Well, it has to do with the word for inn. That that Greek word for inn is used a couple times in the New Testament. And the other times that it's used, it's clearly referring to a guest room not like a, a, a hotel. Now, in, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we, we do see a different Greek word that refers to an inn, like a hotel, in w- one of Jesus' parables, and he talks about even about an innkeeper. But here, in, in Luke chapter 2, the word that's used refers to a, a guest room, not, not like a hotel. And so what, what, what's going on in Luke chapter 2 is the idea that when Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem, the guest room that they were going to stay in was full, probably because of the census. And so rather than staying in the guest room, they stayed in the main room with the rest of the family. Interesting. Yes, because wasn't it the case, if memory is serving me correctly on this particular passage, wasn't it the case that where they were headed, it wasn't like today where you have an embassy suites on every corner. I mean, you would generally stay with other families, wouldn't you? Yeah, Joseph was going to the town of his ancestors in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so, yeah, you would generally stay, especially in a small town like Bethlehem, you wouldn't quite have an embassy suite. So you would be <laughs> looking for, for relatives, distant relatives and friends to stay with. Absolutely. Now, as long as we're talking about the Lord, there is also something very common that we've all read in the Bible, that Jesus was a carpenter. You say this is also in the category of urban legend. Where would this fall? Is this a, you know, as you've mentioned, a mistaken legend or a misleading legend? This is a misleading legend. Jesus was a carpenter. He truly was a carpenter. But as Josh McDowell has said in in, in his book, he was more than a carpenter. I mean that in a different way than he does. (laughs) Basically, 
the word that's used in Mark 6.3 to refer to Jesus as a carpenter is actually a, a more broad term. It incorporates the idea of someone who works with stone, someone who works with metal, and someone who works with wood. So he was a carpenter. He did work with wood, but the, the material in, in Israel was, was more of a stone-type material that you'd be building with. So he probably worked, did a lot more construction in stone than wood, though he would work in all three areas as, uh, as being kind of like a general contractor or a builder. So he was a carpenter, but he was more than a carpenter. I understand. So when we're seeing references to Jesus being, isn't this not the carpenter's son, for example? Right. Is that just a translation issue? Should they have translated it differently than they did? Yeah, I think the, the better way to, to say that is something along the lines of, is this not the builder's son? Hmm. Interesting. So it, it, it wasn't narrow like carpentry, but someone who, who was more of a general contractor or a builder. Okay, now how about Jesus dying when he was 33? Is that not true? Well, most scholars would say that Jesus was born somewhere between 4 and 5 B.C. And if he died in 33 A.D., as I think the majority of conservative evangelical New Testament scholars would probably lean towards that, that dating— then that means that he would be more like 37 years old when he died. Right, but 33 is always the one that is mentioned, even though when we talk about Christmas not really being Jesus' birthday, and when people will admit when Jesus really was born, it was it was not the year zero. In other words, people right. somehow are assuming that, aren't they, if they're saying Jesus was 33? Yeah, it, it's a common idea, a common concept, and there are some scholars that believe he died in the year 30, but I don't really think that does justice to some of the, the historical considerations as far as the details we get in, uh, in Scripture and lining it up with ancient sources like Josephus. Yes, very interesting. There's a lot more to talk about. Dr. David Croteau and I coming back talking about urban legends of the New Testament. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 $116 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty Health Share. 
Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. Dr. David Croto and I are discussing some common misconceptions. He calls them urban legends of the New Testament. There are many things that we as Christians have been taught maybe in Sunday school or maybe have picked up along the way or maybe even read the text in the New Testament and said, well, that's what it says. So that's what it means. And yet we're really not doing the hermeneutics we should or perhaps are trusting somebody who didn't do the hermeneutics correctly or maybe was just a little bit misled. So we are going through some of these very famous passages and in many cases, and finding out what they really are all about. Now, here's one I, I couldn't possibly pass up, Dr. Croton, and that's Matthew 7, 1, uh, the famous line from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge so that you won't be judged. We've all been bludgeoned with that one if we ever try to say anything is wrong or morally uh, problematic. So where do we get this wrong when Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged? What was he really getting at there? Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples that they are not to be judgmental. He wasn't trying to communicate, don't be discerning. In fact, in a, in a, in a similar passage in John chapter 7, Jesus tells them to judge. He says, but judge with a righteous judgment, yes. John 7, 24. Yes. So in Matthew 7, if we, if we were to read through all of Matthew 7, not just up at verse 1, we would see him talking about false prophets. We would see him talking about throwing your, your, your pearls to pigs. And of course, if you do that, or what is holy to dogs, and if you do that, you have to decide, well, who's a dog and who's a pig? And so there is absolutely clear in the Gospel of Matthew that we are to be discerning, and sin is sin, and, and righteous acts are righteous acts. And the idea that we are just to numb ourselves and, and not call sin sin is far removed from the, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Right. That's really important. And you talk about the Greek word translated judge and the fact that it has a number of different meanings. What are the different meanings of that word? Yeah, the word for judge can mean to make a selection, like to prefer something. It can mean uh, passing judgment based on the correctness of something, like discernment. Or it can mean to judge someone to be guilty, condemning them. And, and what Jesus is getting at is, let's not be severely critical. Let's not be judgmental towards people. Interesting. That's good to know. Okay, now let's go to the issue of hell. Because this is an issue that we always have to contend over, and there are different interpretations of what verses on hell tend to mean. Hell has been discussed, uh, specifically the word Gehenna, and many people may be familiar with that particular word used in Mark nine forty seven. Hell is referred to as a first century garbage dump near Jerusalem. I've heard that a number of times. Why is that an urban legend? There was a Jewish rabbi named uh, David Kimhi, and died in, in the 1200s. And in his commentary on Psalm 27, 
He said, Gehenna is a repugnant place into which filth and cadavers are thrown and in which fires perpetually burn in order to consume the filth and bones. He basically calls it a dump. And Christian commentators picked up on this, this uh, rabbi's comments and ran with it. But there is nothing before the year 1200 that ever says that Gehenna was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. Huh. We have 1200 years of silence before we have a suggestion. Wow. Why did they just run with it? What is the, the actual language on that issue? Because there are a lot of different references, obviously, in the New Testament to hell. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes we, 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 we read what someone is saying, and we just kind of trust it. We, we assume that they've done the research, that they've, they've dug into it, and they know what they're talking about. And so rather than, than making sure and, and checking everything ourselves, we just kind of assume, okay, that's, that's just the way it is. Right. But, I mean, this has big implications, doesn't it? Because we have those today who would deny that hell exists. And so what would this do then to some of the arguments against hell if, in fact, uh, this is an urban legend? Yeah, some commentators, some preachers and, and, and authors have used it to basically minimize the idea that hell is a real place, that Jesus was just kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek, or he was just kind of speaking in a, an acute fashion. And, you know, one, one book that I, that I quote here basically says, you know, if next time someone asks you if you believe in an actual hell, you can always say, yes, I do believe that my garbage goes somewhere. Wow. So some people have used that, that background information to really undermine the orthodox doctrine of hell. Right. This is important information then for us to understand. Speaking of hell, there's another uh, important urban legend that you point out in the book that hell is the absence of God. What should we really understand about the New Testament's position on that? The, the first problem that we should have with the idea that hell is the absence of God is just the general concept that there's a place where God is not. The idea that God wouldn't be somewhere actually undermines who we define God as being. Right. So God is, there is no place that God is not. God is everywhere. Right. And so he is, he is present in hell, but his presence in hell is going to look very different, I think, than his presence in heaven. Yes. So he is very real in hell. We, we love John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But in that same chapter, John 3.36, it says that those who don't believe will have the wrath of God abiding upon them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. God's presence in hell is a very real presence of him pouring out his wrath on the unregenerate. Well, isn't that what Jonathan Edwards was pointing out? That he said, it's not that you're out of the presence of God, it's that you're out of the favorable presence of God. Exactly. And I think many times that's what some people mean when they say hell is the absence of God. I think they mean the absence of his favorable presence, but then it comes across like that God is not there. He couldn't be there. It, it's, it's almost like people are trying to, they're uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell, so they want, they want to wash God's hands so that he has nothing to do with it, that he has no interaction there. And I think that that is a minimizing of God's holiness and God's justice. Oh, I agree. Can we get rid of the phrase Christless eternity? Because that one has always bugged me for that very reason. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, now the verse that you cite in that particular case is Second Thessalonians 1, 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So if the Bible says that, what is our response in interpreting it? The, 
the issue there, and it, actually the way I came across this the first time was I was in a Bible study, and a student pointed out a footnote in the ESV, which says, the, the ESV says, away from the presence, but in the footnote it says, or comes from the presence. Ah. And the Greek is actually ambiguous there. And so, uh, knowing that the Greek was ambiguous, I started digging into the, to the text and, and the, pre- the, the Greek and the preposition there, and looking at Bible translations, and I discovered uh, an article written in an academic journal by a, a professor at a, a Southern Baptist Seminary, and he goes and he finds the Old Testament background for this in Isaiah 2, and really just clearly shows how when you read Isaiah 2, and this is a common theme in the Old Testament, God's majestic splendor, His presence brings judgment on the, on the wicked. Right, exactly. So why don't they update it? Why don't they change the verse in some of these translations, or have certain translations actually changed it? Well, the Holman Christian Standard Bible has actually changed it in, in their translation, they leave it kind of ambiguous. Rather than making a decision one way or the other, they kind of leave it ambiguous so that the reader then has the op- option of going which way that they think is most appropriate. So the Holman Christian uh, Standard basically does that. Okay. Do well, that's, job with that. well, that's good. That's good. That's good to know, too. All right. Now, let's talk about the Gospel of John. You have a, a, an urban legend in here saying that the Gospel of John never refers to repentance. People actually you know, think there's no repentance required because the Gospel of John never refers to it. How do we unpack that one? Yeah, this one was one of the hardest ones for me to write. Um, it's a very important issue to me, and I, the idea that um, a proper response to the Gospel would not include repentance just seems so foreign when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. But when you get to John, John never uses the, the typical word we see in the rest of the New Testament for repentance. He, use, he doesn't use the word. What he does instead, though, is he wraps up that concept into what he means when he says believe. Hmm. And this is, again, one of the problems when we don't read verses in context. We see in John 3.16 that God loved the world, and if those who believe will have eternal life. But a lot of times we fail to read the following verses— and in the following verses, John three seventeen to 21, we see that, that those who believe in him are not condemned. And then we go down to verse 21, uh, to verse 20, and it says, For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it. In other words, those who don't repent hate the light and avoid it. And so in the end, John is, is explaining the concept of repentance, even though he doesn't use the word like they do, like it does in the uh, Synoptic Gospels or in Acts of the Apostles. Okay. Now, what about John five fourteen? This is the passage in which Jesus heals the man who was born lame, and he says, "See, you are well. Do not sin anymore, so that something worse doesn't happen to you." Would you say that's a reference to repentance there? Yeah, I think that that is one of the clearest references to the concept of repentance. Saying "Do not sin anymore" and saying "repent" would be saying the equivalent things. Um, but one of the one of the passages that really fascinated me as I as I looked deeper into this issue is John's citation of Isaiah six in John twelve forty. And in John twelve forty he says, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I would heal them. Mm. Well that word for converted used there can also be translated turned, 
which of course would be one way to define repentance, to turn from sin. Right. It's the word means to turn. So I went back and I studied Isaiah 6, and I studied the Hebrew there, and I found that the Hebrew word that John was referring to when he paraphrased Isaiah 6 is actually the Hebrew word for repentance, shuv. Isn't that interesting? And there's a lot more to talk about. Dr. David Croteau and I discussing urban legends of the New Testament when we come back on Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. Great to have you along. Dr. David Croto is my guest, and we are talking about some of the common misconceptions in the New Testament. His book is called Urban Legends of the New Testament, and we've been having a fascinating discussion about some of these urban legends, as he calls them, things we tend to think are biblical, and yet when you really do some proper biblical interpretation, you find out, oh, wait, maybe I had this a little bit off. So we were talking about repentance in the Gospel of John, and another thing you point out, you had mentioned the word turn, that when people think of repentance, of course, it's turning from your sin, turning away from your life of sin and turning to Christ. But people will also refer to repentance as changing your mind. You say repent does not mean to change your mind. What What is the urban legend that's been perpetuated saying that it's about changing your mind? Some people believe that when you, when you study words that are, are compound words. A compound word would be a word made up of two other words. In English, if you have a word like uh, moonlight, it would be moon and light. And you say, okay, well, it's the light that comes from moon, not that actually light comes from moon. It's a reflection of the sun, of course. <laughs> right. Or the word butterfly. Well, you look at the word butterfly, and you don't think a, a fly made out of butter or a fly that <laughs> eats butter or looks like butter. Right. It just doesn't work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Well, the Greek word, if you broke it up into its two parts would literally mean afterthought. And it's possible that when that word was first formed, that that might be the concept that was being communicated. But that's not how we study words. We don't study words by, by just breaking them apart. We study words by how they're used in context. And when we look at this Greek word and how it's used in the New Testament, it's not used with the sense of to change your mind, though that's included in the concept of repentance. For in order to turn from sin, you have to change the way you think about it. But it's more than just a change of mind. It's a change of, of direction. It's a change of, of a heart disposition. Yes. And so repentance includes a lot more than just changing the way you think about God or changing the way you think about Jesus. So people will use this to say that really repentance just means to change your mind 
which is what the word believe means is just to believe in Jesus. So just change the way you think about Jesus. You don't have to change the way you live. Come just as you are. Stay that way. And that's fine. Well, right, because faith in Christ is not just an intellectual matter of assent. And that's kind of what changing your mind could turn into if you said, well, I've changed my mind. I, I didn't used to think this was sinful, but now I agree it's sinful and just go about your day. If that doesn't really impact you, as you say in your heart, that you truly turn from the sin, that you hate the sin, that you have a new nature in Christ, then you're really not understanding what it means to be a Christian. Exactly. True faith and true repentance will bring fruit in someone's life. As James says, faith without works is dead. And, and basically, this is just the idea that a Christian will have fruit. Not be perfect, not be sinless, but there will be fruit in their lives. Okay, so this is a good segue into number 25 in your book, Good Works Are Optional for Christians. And I know there are a lot of people who would like that to be true. What do we say to that one? Yeah, uh, this one I actually heard uh, from a church that I was attending, and the pastor was, was speaking on uh, Ephesians 2.10, and when he gets to the part where it says, those who are created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them, mm-hmm. he started emphasizing this word should. Not that we will, that we have to, but, you know, that would be really a good idea that we do that. <laughs> and when you, when you really look into that text, that's not at all what Paul was trying to communicate. Paul was simply trying to communicate the purpose. The purpose of our salvation is that our lives be characterized by good works, therefore bringing honor and glory to God. Sure. That's it. So I hope you left that church. Did you leave the church? Yes. <laughs> good. Probably after I did. <laughs> okay. Phew. That was a close one. All right. So uh, you mentioned Ephesians 2. Let's go to a few, let's back up a couple of verses. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Stop right there at Ephesians 2.8. So you say another urban legend is Grace is unmerited favor, which we all hear. You say this isn't incorrect, but what is the problem with this idea that grace is unmerited favor? Yes, this is, this is one of the misleading, not the mistaken legends. So, yes, grace is unmerited favor, but it's more than that. It's not just unmerited favor. So what I try to go through is, is the concept of how, how wretched we, we are with, before Christ came and saved us, not just not just by nature, but we are by nature wretched, but also by our actions. And we just did everything we could fighting against God. If God had never approached us, if he had never changed our hearts, we would have hated him, going on hating him throughout all of eternity. So what I like to to explain this as the concept of it's not just unmerited, but demerited. In other words, we did everything we can to fight against the idea of God saving us. The problem is the word demerit sounds like a, a demerit you might get when you're uh, like a, a Christian school or some military academy. Right. So rather than an unearned gift, I call it a, a de-earned gift, a gift mm. we fought against receiving. That is a great way to say it. That's interesting. And then I'm sure if you use it in a Bible study, it'll set off a 15-minute discussion <laughs> on that particular... Well, I don't know if I like that new definition. I liked unmerited favor, but it makes sense the way you explain it. It's absolutely true. All right, let me go back to another one that I had mentioned early on that you include in the book. This one is kind of in the Jesus was a carpenter category, but the urban legend, you say that Paul was a tent maker. Everybody uses the phrase, you know, be a tent maker. If you're a missionary, I'm a tent maker. So I can work in a foreign country where they don't allow missionaries, that sort of thing. Was Paul a tent maker? Yes. 
Paul was a tent maker, but the word used to describe tent maker, again, just like the word used to describe carpenter uh, in, in Jesus' profession, is a broader term. It's much more broad. It refers to someone who most likely worked in leather. It, it's fascinating. I, I trace this one kind of through church history and to see what, what different people throughout church history said that, that Paul, what he, what he did. And I mean, some people said that he was a, a maker of, of leather goods like bridles, and, and, and some say that he was um, uh, made items out of goat's hair and a weaver, basically, and it was just lots of different theories. And some people believe that he was a maker of stage properties, which is probably very unlikely. Hmm. But the, the best research today says that the, the word there refers to the idea of working with leather, which would include tent making, but would be much more broad than that. Okay. Would there be a good English word for that that would be better than tent maker that would still convey the same meaning? Leather worker. Leather worker. That doesn't roll <laughs> off the tongue quite as well as tent maker. <laughs> it, it doesn't. I agree. It doesn't sound as agree. ancient either. Leather worker. Yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> interesting, though. That is very interesting. Okay, let's go to Matthew. This is an interesting one as well. I, I definitely wanted to get your thoughts on this. Matthew eighteen twenty. Everybody knows this verse. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What are we to make of this idea that when two are gathered in prayer, God will be there? Why is that an ur- urban legend? Well, of course, God is with us when we pray, um, but God is not just with us when two of us pray. Does this mean that when we pray by ourselves that he's not with us? Right, no. And, and so automatically I, the antenna goes up, what do you mean he's with us? What does that mean? The key here that's, that's been misleading people is when he says, when they're gathered in my name. And if you study the phrase in my name in the New Testament, you'll come to the Gospel of John and you'll see statements like, whatever you ask in my name, and it's a reference to prayer. Yes. But in Matthew, in my name has no reference to prayer in any of the places that, uh, that we see it. And so this is not a context of prayer. This is actually a context of church discipline. Oh, really? So what, yeah. what, meaning what then? What, what is the distinction? Church discipline is a scary thing for, for, for leaders to do. I mean, they're going to they're gonna step in, they're going to tell people that they are acting inappropriately, they're going to hold them accountable, and if the person doesn't turn from their sin, they're going to bring them before the congregation and expose their sin. Right. And that must be a very scary thing for church leaders. And so what this verse is trying to say is, if two or three of you come together, you analyze this situation of church discipline, realize that as you make your decision... I am there with you. And it's a comfort to church leaders who are involved in this process of church discipline. Wow. So a little bit hand in hand with Matthew 18 then, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is fascinating. Uh, yeah. And I'd never heard that interpretation before, but you're right. There isn't a reference here in this particular verse to prayer. So certainly there's got to be another explanation. We're going to come back. Dr. David Croto, Urban Legends of the New Testament. We'll come back after this. When this mom came into a preborn center to schedule an abortion, she had no idea that the life inside of her was not just one, but two. Uh, when I see the ultrasound and everything, for me, 
they changed my whole life. Here the heartbeat, I want to keep the baby, especially when they told me that there were two and only one. And now her twins are eight. I want to be a doctor when I grow up. When I grow up, I want to work at a zoo and be a veterinarian. When an expectant mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. Preborn is the number one competition to Planned Parenthood in the USA. Your donation of $28 sponsors one ultrasound, and for $140, you can help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 yes word 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800-937-9673 or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmafford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. And boy, we are learning a lot this hour about these 40 common misconceptions a lot of us have about the biblical words and texts and verses within the confines of the New Testament. Dr. David Croto is with us discussing his book, Breaking It All Down, Urban Legends of the New Testament. So we were talking about so many different things, Paul being a tent maker and being gathered in God's name and two or three are gathered and and they're gathered in my name for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, let's turn to the gospel itself because you have a couple of different entries in your misconceptions on the issue of believing. You just say you believe in Jesus and you will be saved. What are we to make of that particular urban legend that you just say you believe in Jesus and that's all you need to do? I think some people have misunderstood um, what's going on with the idea of confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. This idea, uh, you referred to it earlier, like mental assent. And it's, it's almost like people are trying to to minimize what is actually taking place when someone becomes a Christian and, 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 and the work of, of the Spirit and conviction. And you just try to make it really easy. They try to make their methods of evangelism easy. They try to you know, make the gospel into a two, three, four-step presentation. And so they just try to simplify everything to the point where they minimize what some of the words mean. Like this idea of confessing with your mouth, the idea of confessing is the idea of pledging your allegiance to someone. Yes. This is not just the idea of your lips moving and words coming out like a, like a mystical chant or a formula that a witch might say or, or someone in a pagan cult from the first century might say. Yes, because clearly in the, in the context of the New Testament, becoming a Christian was a much bigger deal than it is in modern America. Um, to confess that Christ was Lord actually cost you something back then. 
Exactly. And so this idea of pledging allegiance to Jesus as Lord, and when you say Jesus is Lord, that's not just like a title you're giving to him. You're saying he is, he is your master, and you're going to live in submission to him. Right. So just, just saying words, just saying something, doesn't mean you actually believe it in your heart. doesn't mean that God has actually done a work in your heart to give you life, to, to, to raise you from death to life. Yes. Now, alongside this, we have the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31, and the urban legend you mentioned is the Philippian jailer just believed and was saved. What about that one? That fits a little bit hand-in-hand hand with what we've been discussing. Yeah, in Acts 16.31, we, we see that the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. Well, if, again, if we just read there and we stop then we could think that, okay, well, that's all we have to tell people. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, look, if you walk up to someone who knows nothing about Jesus, and you just say, believe in Jesus, and they go, okay, (laughs) that doesn't mean that they're saved. No. What we see in the very next verse, it says, then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. So Paul didn't just say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He actually followed that up with an entire message. And as readers of Acts, we're supposed to take the sermons we've already read that Paul preached and kind of put them in right there. We've heard Paul preach sermons already in Acts, so the content of those can be assumed in what he says in verse 32. That's great. That is absolutely great. Okay, this one I also wanted to get to before we run out of time. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. <laughs> and I'm gonna, you're laughing because you know where I'm going with this. Here's what it says. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The urban legend you mentioned is that synagogues had men and women seated separately. Explain that one. Yeah, I I heard when I was in seminary that because men and women were seated on opposite sides of the room, what Paul was trying to say was women don't shout or yell across the the church slash synagogue and talk to your husband. And the reason for being silent was simply it would be disruptive in the service. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, what's the so truth? <laughs> that, what we were doing the research on it and trying to figure out, did men and women truly sit separately in the synagogue? We realized that actually there's no evidence in the first, second century at all that that, that, that was the, the seating arrangement. And so that can't be the explanation for that passage. Wow. So where are they getting that then? Well, there was a book written in the 1800s uh, by a guy named Emile Scherer, and he says... Um, he says in there that this was the case, and he, he, he honestly, he says he's basically assuming it, and in, the foot, in a footnote, he says the separation of the sexes, sexes must be assumed as self-evident. Huh. That's what he says. Self-evident. But he's the first one who came up with it? Uh, first one I could find that came up with it, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Always beware of the guy who's got something brand new nobody ever said before. <laughs> no, really. And, but I mean, that's really a strike at feminism, isn't it? Uh, a strike at, at feminism? Well, yeah, to be able to say, no, it wasn't because they were on separate sides of the synagogue and the women had to keep silent because it was disruptive if they yelled at their husbands. Because that, I mean, that's what I've heard a lot of liberals point to and say, you know, Paul obviously was talking about something different than you think historically was the case. Yeah, and, and you know, really, this, the reason I laughed when you asked about this chapter is this was the last one I wrote. This was the one I wrestled with 
more than any other chapter as far as I knew what it didn't mean, but figuring out what it does mean is, is, is really tricky. And where I came down is the context is about evaluation of, proph- of prophecies. And what Paul is saying is he doesn't want women evaluating prophecies in the church gathering. Mm, What we do with prophecies is a whole other conversation. But, you know, just imagine a woman standing up in a congregation when when, when a sermon has been preached or something like that and giving that evaluation. Well, the proper understanding of of, uh, the order of creation that man was created first and then woman and First Timothy 2 and those verses show us that man is the head, and woman, a woman is to submit to man. And so if she's functioning in the role of authority in a local congregation, that would be inappropriate. Right. So you're right, this is a strike at feminism, because cause people have tried to, to explain away the passage with a seating arrangement, but where there's really no good evidence for it. Right, or they'll say, well, that was just an ancient context, doesn't apply today. Um, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll try to label Paul as a, a woman hater, a misogynist, and, and say that that's where he's going from, coming from. But really, Paul is, is, is going back to Genesis 2, and he's, he's stating this as an eternal principle as far as worship in, in the church. Very good. Okay, I think we have time for one more, and that is the legend to abstain from all appearance of evil. Why is that one a legend? Well, people will take this passage, and what they, what they try to do with 1 Thessalonians 5.22 is say that if you are doing something that someone else thinks might be wrong, then what you're doing is wrong, because you could lead your, your brother or sister in Christ to stumble. You might yeah. lead them to think bad things about you. Right. The, the problem with that one, honestly, if you, if you have the, uh, the NIV, the, the 2011 NIV, they do a spectacular job with this verse, way better than the 84 NIV. Uh, the, the NIV now says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hmm. So the idea is, when you hear uh, spiritual teaching, you are supposed to test it like a Berean. Sure. And then, well, what do you do when you test it? Well, if it's good, the NIV says, hold on to what is good. And it follows it with, reject every kind of evil. And this is the phrase, abstain from every kind of evil. But the NIV says, reject every kind of evil. So the idea is, you hear spiritual instruction, you test it. If it's good, you hold on to it, you cling to it, you live it out in your life. But if it's bad, you need to reject it. So really, it's talking about rejecting false teaching. It is not talking about doing something that someone else might think is bad. That is good. And that makes a lot of sense. So with all of these misconceptions, and people can read the book for themselves, and they absolutely should to read all of them and see all the great explanations here. We're talking about an issue of biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. Very quickly, what would be your advice to listeners, to ordinary Christians and to scholars, pastors, on proper hermeneutics and why it's so important? You know, the one thing that I, I came out at the end of the book that, was, that really pleased me is most of these legends can be resolved if you read the context carefully. It, it, we, we, we take a verse and we pull it out of a passage and we put it on a bumper sticker, we put it on a coffee mug, and we don't really look at where it falls at in a chapter or in a book. Right. Read chunks of Scripture, read sections, and, and try to read it over and over again and know what the context is and allow that to be your guide for interpretation. Context is the key to interpreting Scripture accurately. You don't necessarily have to have great knowledge of Greek or background information. If you pay attention to context, three three quarters of these legends would never have happened. 
Well, and that's something that always needs to be kept in mind for any of us reading the Bible, that just because you want to put, for example, a certain verse on Twitter doesn't mean that you can isolate that verse apart from the rest of the context of that particular book or passage. And that's such, such important stuff to keep in mind. Great book. It's called Urban Legends of the New Testament, 40 Common Misconceptions. So interesting and so informative. Dr. David Croto with us this hour. Thank you so much, Dr. Croto. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on, Janet. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you very much. And our website is JanetMefford.com. Thanks a lot for listening. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.